Warning, the following podcast contains descriptions of violence against human beings and may contain descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is not suitable for children under the age of 13. Listener discretion is advised. Mom, I killed Dean. Welcome back, Paranormies. I'm Zane. And I'm Kyle. And we're back. I think I'm going to do that in Vincent Price's voice one of these times. Okay. But not like real Vincent Price. I'm going to do it in like the Bill Hader <laughs> Vincent Price, where he's like, okay. welcome back to the House of Horrors. But it sounds nothing like Vincent Price. It sounds like Kermit the Frog with a head cold. Right. I'm going to do it. But it's still kind of eerie. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Like, wouldn't want to hear that coming from my closet in the middle of the night. <laughs> right. Neither would Alex Jones <laughs> if he was around a frog. Oh my God. <laughs> It's going to be stuck in my head. So, yeah, well, we're going to just move right on past that. Kyle, who can make the sunrise? And sprinkle it with dew? Is it the Candyman? The Candyman can. Are you going to tell us more about the Candyman today? I am going to tell you about the Candyman, but he's also known as the Pied Piper. Now, the reason I'm giving you two names is because there's another serial killer by the name of the Candyman that I will not talk about tonight. Um, that his story comes up a lot around Halloween. In fact, maybe I'll just give a brief history of it. He gave his son oh, oh, oh. a pixie teacher, stick. Teacher, 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 picnic. Yes. Zane. I know this one. Yeah, go, All go right. ahead. Tell me if I'm wrong here. Is this the insurance fraud guy? Yes. Okay. Ladies and gents, this man is right up there with Homer Simpson for dad of the year. So this homie gave his kid a pixie stick um, on Halloween night. Nothing abnormal about that. However, shortly after his son inhaled this pixie stick, he ends up in the hospital and dies. And his dad claims it was some kind of bad candy he was given. And it was because his dad gave it to him. His dad had fixed it. And he'd set it up so that essentially his son would... Hey, was, wasn't he in like a mass amount of debt or was it just greed? Um, I think he was in debt, but it wasn't like to the extreme to do something like this because a few weeks or even the, the week before he had taken out an insurance policy of like multi-million dollars on his children. Isn't there some kind of red flag in the system like like where you have like X amount of time that has to elapse before your insurance policy kicks in for life insurance? That's what I thought, but I think it had kicked in at that point. Creepy stuff. So, yeah. So, so this was also back in like the sixties. So is this designated? So we're designating he is who in this in this puzzle you've just given me the Pied Piper or the Candyman or neither. Well, this is this guy's neither in neither of the stories. I'm okay. just saying I wanted to mention this guy because he comes up around a lot during Halloween when people are like, oh, check your kid's candy for cyanide. No, the where that myth came from was this guy who gave his son a pixie stick that was laced with cyanide, and killed his son anyways he also news headlines are just out. so much more fun when they're terrifying to parents right exactly and when you can find razor blades in your apples because no one's gonna can. figure that out kids are huffing <laughs> things <laughs> but this candy man he got his nickname not because of the murders he did but he got the nickname because of the kind of work he did he made candy so we're gonna get into it his name is dean arnold coral and they always sound like somebody you know that would be flanders <laughs> yes yeah. dean, totally neighbor <laughs> dean arnold coral uh he was born on december 24th of 1939 wow i didn't realize um christmas eve uh but he was oh. born in indiana oh that's mixed spooky okay yeah um his mother's name was Mary Emma Robinson, and she was married to Arnold Edwin Quarrel at the time. Real quick, 
I feel like serial killer's parents are always named something hella religious. Oh, for sure. Either that or it's like some really old name like Rutabaga. Yeah, Mary Emma. Rutabaga. <laughs> Mary Emma. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he is the oldest of three children. Um, he had a younger brother by the name of Stanley. And Mary was very protective of her sons because Arnold, his father, was super strict with his children. Was he abusive? I don't know. It, it didn't say abuse at all. It just said super strict. Are we going to say super strict, read abusive? Because it's the 30s? Probably. So he deals with the fact that he works in a steel mill and that the Great Depression just got over by drinking? Mm-hmm. Cool. Most likely. So daddy shoe varnish. Yeah. So she pretty much protects the, her boys from him. And the marriage was on the de- decline even after Dean had been born. And then they, ha- they had his younger brother. In 1946, Mary and Arnold divorced. Um, Mary then sold the family farmer relocated to Memphis, Tennessee in a trailer home. In 1950, Coral's parents decided to reconcile and remarried in 1950, and they moved the family to Pasadena, Texas. Uh, the couple then divorced again in 1953. Although Mary kept full custody of her boys, they still had regular contact with their father. <laughs> so, real quick. I'm definitely that uppity witch from down the road that's all up in your business right now because, like, this whole time I was not even paying attention to the quantity, like, the the negative impacts on the family as much as, like, girl, you left him. Do not go back to him. You are going to leave him again. I'm like, dude, this is, like, the bachelor but, like, worse for me. Like, Mm -hmm. so I was more interested in that than the fact that they're tearing apart their children's lives. I was like, no. Yeah, exactly. No, you done goofed, Mm -hmm. son. Anyway, continue. Now, she did try to reconcile with her children and make it right by saying, oh, you'll still have regular contact with their dad, which they did. Um, But Dean still was a very shy and serious child who rarely rarely socialized with other children. So that's a sign of, uh, what's what's the, there's a term for that. Um, it's not social anxiety, but it's like Isolation? essentially. Yeah, there, well, there's like a, like, a, like a psychological term and it's evident in a lot of serial killers. It's also evident in people that just have social issues, but yeah. um, it's kind of a key point that reader or listeners should take notice of. Yes, absolutely. In fact, as I was reading through and studying all of this, I was finding like it just laid out itself perfectly to be like, oh yeah, he, this makes sense why he's a serial killer. Yeah. Um. Now it was noted, and I don't know who noted it or who said this, if it was a teacher or whatever, but they said he was still compassionate toward others, which is not a super large sign for serial killers. Yeah, sociopathy is more often attributed to serial killers. If yeah. he has empathy for other people, that means that there was something else that snapped. Right. Okay. Uh, he came down with root. Rheumatic fever, which was undiagnosed and resulted in, resulted in him developing a heart murmur in 1950. So the same year that his parents got back together. Yeah, that's going to be good for your heart. With this diagnosis, he was also then excluded from PE in school. Okay. Rheumatology is a branch of medicine devoted to the diagnosis and therapy of rheumatic diseases. Rheumatologists mainly deal with immune, immune-mediated disorders and the, the musculoskeletal system. So it's like immune system stuff, but directly related to the musculature of the body and the skeletal system. Okay. Well, that, I guess that would make sense why he would be eliminated from PE other than yeah. that, you know, they were all inhaling lead. Everything was made of asbestos in the 60s was a terrible nightmare of a time. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. But he, I think the reason he was excluded from PE was mainly because of his heart murmur that had developed because of the fever. Wasn't it undiagnosed though? Yes. Interesting. Um, then Mary remarried a third time. So the first two times was for, to her first husband. And the second time, she married a man by the name of Jake West, a traveling 
clock salesman. Not to be confused with TV's Adam West. <laughs> Jake West, but close. You can see the confusion. <laughs> Uh, they moved to Vitter, Texas. Vitter. Vitter. Vi- wait, wait. Spell it. V-I-D-O-R. I lived there. You did? I lived in Vitter, Texas for freaking four months. It's Good okay. So Vitter, when, just to give you an insider's view, Vitter, Texas, when I lived there, is still essentially segregated. Um, really? There, well, there's a lot of that in, in that part of the country. And there are, by the way, excellent people that live in Vider. No no offense meant to anybody, but I'm just going to state the facts the way they are. There's essentially still a known segregation in, in Vider. There's a very long history of real and violent segregation mm-hmm. in Vider. There used to be signs that said, "Can we? should we be able to say the N-word if it's a quote? Is that, like, okay? I will still bleep it, probably. Okay. Um, listeners, this, this is a verbatim quote, just to be clear. It says, get out before dark um oh, and it was on the next to the freeway like there were there are pictures of black people being hung from the trestle there oh my gosh um and these are pretty recent-ish like it was like the 60s um so vider is very deep south very um very southern we'll put it that way and it's a town built along one road still to this day the freeway bisects it down the middle but not in the direction the city was originally built. Okay. It goes right through the middle of town and like creates a, divi- or a division wall. It doesn't change the living standard by any means, but it's clear that the city was a, an afterthought of the freeway and not the other way around. Oh, okay. Um, so to get around Vider, you drive down one long road that goes out through twisting pines, out through very thick wooded areas, out through crawfish fields that I got lost in, actually in the middle Ooh. of the night once. Um, out through what you picture when you're picturing Louisiana. And the reason for that is that Vider is only 12 minutes from the Louisiana border. Okay, that makes and sense. And it's from the Louisiana border that is the true deep south. When you picture Louisiana, you're picturing New Orleans, you aren't picturing the right place. What I'm talking about is Cypress knees coming up out of the water. <laughs> you know, the things you picture when you picture eyes staring back at you from yeah. the dark. Mm-hmm. That is where I lived. Oof. I remember looking out the back window of my apartment and, you know, I was in a city. I was in, like, a, like a township, and it still felt so rural. That's so crazy. So the, the fact that the Candyman lived there yeah. just adds to that ethos. So in 1955, uh, Dean's mother and his stepfather have a daughter, and um, so he now has a half-sister. So there's three kids in total in the family. Um, Why is it always the families that are hit the hardest by economic stress that have the most children? I don't know. I always feel so bad. Right. The rich get richer and the poor get children. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm never going to have children, but I'm still poor. Um, Well, I mean, with you being a eunuch and all. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Abe. (laughs) You guys have seen um, Pirates? Yeah. Oh, more licky licky. And snippy snippy. (laughs) (laughs) Points to him. (laughs) But about that time uh, that his sister was born, uh, his mother and his stepfather were convinced to buy into pecans at the time. That's a big thing down there. Really? That still is. Like, so there's a settlement not too far from it called, um, oh, lands. I can't think of what it is because it's outside of where I lived. Um, Port Acres. That's it. Okay. So Port Acres, by the way, beautiful, beautiful place, but right in the middle of a hurricane bowl. Got hit really bad during the last hurricane. Um, Hope everybody down there is all right. Love Port Acres. Represent. Um, But it's right above a place called Port Natchez, um, which is right by Grove. But essentially, Port Acres is where they would, like, there were these huge pecan fields. And Mm -hmm. we actually went out there a couple times. There's people that we knew. 
Um, and they would just give us these like big bags of pecans and they're so good, but they, it's like a huge local growth industry down there. Right. So it makes sense that they would be involved in that. Absolutely. Well, and they turned this purchasing of pecans into a candy store or they didn't actually open a store, but they started making candy and like selling it out the house or, uh, well, the, his stepfather would sell it when he was doing his sale clockwork salesman. Um, I don't think he was just selling clocks. But he was, I think he was also repairing them. Um, so but he Dean was, was kind of just trying the, to make ends meet, doing yeah. clock sales and then selling these pecans along the way. Yeah, right. and I think it was just like, oh, well, hey, I, I, if I can't sell you a clock, here's some candy, you know, it's it's That's an interesting cheaper, sales you know? tactic. Okay, yeah. continue. Um, so Dean was actually involved in the candy making since the company's inception. Uh, Dean worked day and night while still attending school. He was... Designated to run the run the candy making machines and packing the product with his brother, so I'm like, okay, well, if you're making the candy and packaging it, what did your parents do? Well, my thought is his parents are probably like, think about this, especially what year is this? Fifty five. Fifty five. Fifty five ish. Fifty five ish. Well, either way, his mom was probably somehow involved in homekeeping. You know, I, I can't uh, I speak to true. that, but like from the colloquialisms of the time, mm -hmm. his mother would have been involved in the matronly chores of the home. Right. And the father was off trying to make a quote real living. This was probably considered a side hustle. And by extension, this is you pulling your weight as a child. I guess I could see it's that. It's kind then. of like mowing the lawn of the time. You know right. I mean? Okay. I can see that. Well, I mean, it, his stepfather, like I mentioned earlier, would sell the candy on his sell, his sale routes while he was selling clocks and he would often travel to houston where the majority of the candy was sold houston sorry <laughs> i lived there it was amazing houston you're a beautiful city as long as you get directly out of central houston okay good to know uh dean attended vader high Am I vider vider high Darth school. vader at an eye okay vider high school uh where we where he was a little bit of a loner but he was very well behaved he dated a few girls but his main focus in high school was the brass band where he played the trombone just kidding. Mike. <laughs> Mike played the, the trumpet. trumpet. <laughs> sounds kind of like trombone. And I mean, uh, what, the they're both band. brass and there's they're, they're curvy pipes? Isn't that still yeah, brass? That's, that's about all the similarities <laughs> there are. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mike has curvy pipes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ladies. Uh, <laughs> Ladies. <laughs> Dean graduated high school in 1958, where shortly after his family moved to northern Houston to be closer to where the candy is being sold. Did it say what part of northern Houston? Um, yes, I will get to that. I'm so excited. <laughs> I probably lived there. In 1960, Dean was instructed by his mother to go back to Indiana, where he was born, to live with his widowed grandmother. And just stay there. Just go and live with don't her. Don't come back. Right. We don't want you. <laughs> Leave. I know, and I'm like, I feel like there's more to that than what's being told or what I could find. Yeah, try reading the MK Ultra case files. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but while living with his grandmother, grandmother, he started dating a local girl. In 1962, he rejected her marriage proposal. Her so, marriage proposal. Her marriage proposal. Whoa, holy which progressive was very for that progressive. time. Absolutely. Wow. I thought that same thing. It was very progressive. Um, and then later that year, he moved back to Houston Heights is where he, where in the Houston area they were. I'm assuming that's Kingwood. That That's my guess. Here, I'm going to Google Houston Heights. Okay. I, did, I did not live in Kingwood, but... I know of Kingwood. Okay, continue. Uh, but yeah, he moved back to Houston Heights in an apartment of his own above the store where they sold their candy. So now they have a storefront. They have a storefront. And now. it's just for the candy? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes, just for the so candy. So it's kind of building itself up. So here's the best part, okay? Married, now divorces Jake West in 1963, 
And because he ended up taking the candy company, she opened a new candy business with her sons and called it Coral Candy Company. Um, Okay, so she named Dean the vice president of the company. She obviously was president of the company. And they named Stanley as treasurer. That same year, a male employee complained to Mary that Dean had made sexual advances toward him. And as a result, Mary fired him. So the teen, not Dean. So real quick, so Dean is older than this teenager, just to clarify. So Dean yes. is, is the older party here, yes. and he's making sexual advances on a younger male. Correct. Okay, so that actually could be indicative of something. That could be why he shunned the girl that he was intru- that he was supposedly interested in, not yes. because of the progressivism, but because there was some lingering homosexual tendencies. Is Absolutely. that what you think yes, it was? Yes, and okay. that's where we're headed to right now. Uh, Dean was then drafted into the U.S. Army in 1964 and assigned to Fort Polk in Louisiana for basic training. Um, so, Kyle, real quick. This is not just him that's done this, at least in the past, in my understanding of serial killers. Um, Dahmer. Dahmer had, uh, I believe, a girlfriend prior to his attacks, which were all on men. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had this undercut sexual tendency. There's a really interesting theory that was kind of put forward. So... Obviously, um, equal rights has come a long way right. since the 60s, and we're all better for it. Like, Agreed. good job. <laughs> good job, people acknowledging that people are humans. <laughs> we're real proud of you, except for you, Mitch McConnell. But um, <laughs> so my thought process is I'm wondering if like, so these guys were already, of course, serial killers. They had exhibited the tendencies with the notable exception of the fact that he was apparently a totally normal young kid. Right. But. I almost wonder if a lot of the reason that we have these like kids where they break out and instead of coming out, they go kill a bunch of people and have either a homosexual fantasy or a homoerotic fantasy with them is because they were forced to remain in the closet for so long. I agree. And this is where I'm going to start making parallels to Harry Potter. (laughs) Yeah. Homoerotic fantasies and serial killers. (laughs) Harry Potter. You know, that was my exact thought too. What kind of fan fiction do you write? (laughs) Not Harry Potter specifically, but the um, Fantastic Beast first movie. Are you familiar with it? Only good one in the series? Well, there's only two so far. So yes. And Johnny Depp didn't ruin that, y'all. Everybody calm that down. He was a good Grindelwald. Agreed. Now. I did good. I haven't said the F word yet. (laughs) The reason I'm mentioning this is because... In Fantastic Beasts, a person who suppresses their magic abilities creates a parasite, a magical parasite that will just randomly combust at any time. Interesting. I see exactly where you're getting at. So I feel like because they have dug, buried something that's a large part of them so deep that every once in a while it has to escape and it escapes in a really dark way. Well, and I also think that part of that is the the aggressiveness of it is the repression. Absolutely. Um, you know, like, think about So we'll talk about Dahmer, guys. Plug, plug, plug. Don't you worry your pretty mm-hmm. shiny heads. You'll see, but not just Dahmer, but you'll also see a lot of parallels with Gacy as well. Exactly. It was the other one I was going to bring up. Mm-hmm. I think you're totally right, but I think the really interesting part in it is that a lot of these guys, I don't know so much about Gacy as far as his, his exact impetus. I know that he claimed that the killer clown was an alter ego, that uh, he had schizophrenia, which I actually believe. I, yes. I genuinely do believe I that so. he I think, had so some repressed issues that unfortunately led him down that path. And those kids will never come back. But I do think he was just somebody with psychological issues that Agreed. made very, very bad choices. But more to the point, um, 
The question then becomes, is it because it's so pent up that it becomes so aggressive and so violent? I think so, because they're trying so hard to hide it. And so it just gets buried deeper and deeper and deeper until it's like, you can't bury this. This is a very large part of your life. And then it just escapes. And they the only way they can allow it to come out is in the worst possible well, way. And sexual identity is a huge part of anybody's life. I mean, regardless of your opinions on that specific hot button issue. And by the way, listeners, we mean no offense to anybody in the community. If you uh-huh. have more information than us, let us know. We, Absolutely. We, we want to know. We want to make sure we're representing everybody correctly. But um, to my point, I... I'm curious that, you know, to me, if you think about the male concept, uh, you know, like sports, football, testosterone, that is something that men identify by. Right. So essentially, if, we, if we're talking about sexual identity and its necessity, it is a huge part of your life. And if you're forced to closet that, especially in this generation where gay people didn't exist, it was, yeah, it you, you can't be gay. That's no. not something that's a thing. Right. I really would be interested to find out if that's why it becomes so violent. If the violence is, that's being enacted is against those I who held them back. I would love to know the psychology behind all that's that. That's super interesting. If we have anybody out there who has a familiarity with psychology on that front, or even is just within the LGBT community and would like to speak with us, we're more than happy to have you respond to us at plug in data here. <laughs> The place where you can email us. <laughs> It'll all be at the end of the podcast. Normalguys yeah, that's, at gmail.com. That's, that's Thank actually, you. Yeah, so we'll we'll include like a thing at the end of the podcast. Kyle, actually, I've rudely cut you off again. Continue. That's okay. I'll just start from where I was. So Dean was then drafted into the U.S. Army in 1964 and was assigned to the Fort Polk in Louisiana for basic training. He was then transferred to Fort Benning in Georgia, where he was trained to be a radio repairman before he was permanently assigned to Fort Hood in Texas. Um, Like in school, Dean's record was unblemished. The only thing is, is he hated the military and he applied for a hardship discharge, stating that his family needed him to run the family business and the army granted his request and he was honorably discharged June of 1965. So he only served for 10 months. Well, he's lucky too, because he would have been put on infantry duty pretty quick after that. This, This was during Vietnam, by the way, guys. Yes. So this is during the time when the fighting was getting very intense and when we had the president sending boys off to die for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, plug, plug, plug. Um, <laughs> I actually just released a uh, new print on my Redbubble site. Go ahead and look up. Um, oh, my goodness. Okay. Catharsis, spell with a Y, C-A-T-H-A-R-S-Y-S art on redbubble.com. I have a print that just came out, and it says, same helmet, different war. There's a better explanation of what it means in the subject line. But it's what would have been happening to the Candyman at the time. He would have been put into active duty because there were so few men that were going overseas or willing to. So he gets out in 10 months on a hardship discharge. Mm-hmm. Do we have any real evidence that his family was actually monetarily struggling? They have a storefront. I don't know. Um, I'm not 100% sure the proof behind it. Uh, I don't know if his brother was maybe a little bit socially inept to run the business but it was enough that he got away with it yes absolutely interesting Mm -hmm. because like people were doing religious deferments by the way jehovah's witnesses technically can't carry guns like they they are not allowed to go to war there's an excellent film called hacksaw ridge all about it oh i didn't know that yeah amazing whoever it was the guy who played spider-man totally redeemed himself in my eyes but either way um (laughs) outstanding but they can't like like it's a religious tenant of theirs very similar to like how Mormons don't drink, or I guess members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't drink. <laughs> okay. It's kind of like the same level. Like, they, right. they can't carry a gun. So um, they have this whole beating your weapons into plowshares thing. But either way, 
they were not getting deferments. Right. So the fact that he gets a hardship deferment at the height of the Vietnam War, for reasons best left at questionable, is really interesting to me. Yes. I wonder if it's because his mother was not married at the time, and so they felt like he needed to be a father to his younger siblings. That's possible, but that's more of a World War II mentality. I think it was because he was exhibiting homosexual tendencies and they wanted him out. Yes, because after his release from the army, Dean revealed to some of his close acquaintances that he realized that he was homosexual. Remember, don't ask, don't tell. It's a very healthy way to live your life. Um, and I didn't write Not. this. I didn't write this down, but um, he had admitted to having gay experiences in the military. Interesting. So that would probably. And be at that why. time, that would have been a dishonorable discharge because the country was effed. And but I'm was. wondering if they couldn't prove it. That he had had these experiences, and so when he applied for it, they're just like, yes, get out, we does don't he, want Does he here. have a history of lying, though? I mean, some serial killers are pathological liars. Not really. Interesting. Not really. Um, so, yes, he told uh, a few of his acquaintances that he was homosexual, but there were other acquaintances that noted a subtle change in Dean's mannerisms when the company of teenage boys... So he would change a little bit when the teenage boys were around, which led them to believe that he was homosexual. Ah, uh, yes. So Conclusive evidence of the 60s. Basically, the entire town knew that he was gay, or they suspected it. Which means? I don't... No one isolated him. He was never Interesting. lynched or anything like that. But yeah, I think generally you only just... get lynched once. Right. YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> But he does die by the hands of somebody else, and we'll get to that. Voldemort? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Back to Harry Potter. Okay. Continue. Uh, the Coral Candy Company was in fierce competition with its former company that their ex-father still owned. And so they were running in very high demand, causing them to move to... Now, I don't, I'm not familiar with these streets, but they were all noted, so I felt like they were important to add in as I was coming across them. Okay. But it said that he need, they moved to 22nd Street across from the elementary school. Well, and, that part is freaky as right? crap. But yeah. And he was known to give candy. And remember, he's the vice president, so he wants to get candy out there. I mean... Vice president of the company. Of the company, yes. He's not Spiro Agnew. <clears throat> and so he wants to... Get the candy out there like a drug, so that they're like, "Oh, I want that!" Like, Mom, can we run to the candy store and get this candy? Gotta you know, get them kids hooked I mean, on that good candy. Absolutely. So he would give out candy to the local children as they were leaving school. Man, what a simpler time where you could do that and right. it, there wasn't a question mark there. Okay, uh, continue. But this guy inserted a question mark for us because yeah, thanks, dude. <laughs> Ruin candy. So he also had a pool table in the back of the candy factory where employees and youth would come and hang out. And so this is where he kind of got the name of the, the nickname of the Candyman or the Pied Piper because he would hand out candy. Kids could come over to the candy shop, well, the back of the candy shop and play pool and just hang out. Well, I mean, like that at the time, it probably would have been viewed as like almost rebellious. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm going to go hang out at the pool hall because usually pool halls are kind of associated with absolutely. drinking and illicit behavior. But if you're a kid... There's something that draws you about that. It's like mm-hmm. when your parents tell you don't go see a rated R movie, and then you come home and you're like, and then the guy, he put the nail through the guy's eye, and I can't see it. I'm going to sleep in your room now. I was 15, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> my parents weren't worried about ratings in movies. My, my parents were very concerned about it, to the point where the first rated R movie I saw was in my friend's living room, and I was convinced that at any moment my mom would come bursting in the door. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just like thought she would. Oh, that's funny. Um, in 1967, Coral became friends with a 12-year-old, and now this 12-year-old is going to be intertwined with the rest of the story. His name is David Owen Brooks, and he was a frequent recipient of the free candy that Dean would hand out at elementary school, and he was a regular 
to come and hang out at the pool table in the back of the candy shop. Um, he would also join Dean on regular trips to South Texas beaches in the company of other youth. Brooks said Dean was the first adult to not mock his appearance. That is literally all I could find. I couldn't even find a picture of him. I don't know if he was just a gangly kid. I don't know if he was just unattractive. I don't know. But he was the first one to not mock his appearance. So real quick, um, <clears throat> I'm a salesman. That's that's my job. Mm -hmm. um, one of the main tenets that you use in the persuasion process, otherwise known as manipulating people into giving you money, mm -hmm. um, is that you there's a there's a tactic, rather, where you do them a favor. So you'll hear this in a lot of sales pitches if you listen to them. Hey, we noticed that there was this activity on your card, so we give you a call. You've done them a favor. Now they have to at least listen long enough to hear if you're legit. Mm -hmm. Keeps them from hanging up immediately. It's actually something that is used in the sex slave trade quite a bit, um, where they essentially the concept is that you groom the person in question into right. a regular <laughs> pattern of behavior. And I have a funny feeling we're headed in that direction. When Brooks needed cash, uh, Dean would oblige and he would just give him money. But then Dean was slowly be kind of becoming a father figure to Brooks. Uh, Dean eventually pressured David into be into a sexual relationship. There it is. In 1969, Dean would pay nice. Brooks. Sorry. <laughs> Dean would pay Brooks to perform fellatio on the youth. Wait, he would pay the kid to perform sex acts on the kid. Yes. That's like prostitution with more steps. Right. That's, what the but, heck? I think this is his way of trying to get in and being like, well, you had me do this to you. Not to mention that it probably satisfies some kind of fantasy he had. So probably one thing you have to remember about serial killers, serial rapists, anybody who has a serial in front of their name other than serial bar is um, and possibly then right. <laughs> that they're always after your lucky charms. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got the puns, um, but. I think this may have been him living out some kind of lurid, illicit fantasy. I think so. But it also gives him cover because you're saying, dude, I'm paying you. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I'm giving you money. Yeah, yeah. You're a minor. You're going to go tell anybody that I paid you to have sex with me. Yeah, that's going to happen. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. So he's got this kid literally on the string because. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So Brooke's parents divorced and his mother moved to Beaumont. I lived in Beaumont. Okay. I was there for six months. It's my favorite city in all of East Houston. So it was. Be fitty represent. So it was about 80 ish miles away from. Thereabouts. It's like a, about an hour and a half drive. And yep. it's a big city, by the way. It's like, okay. it's also one of the deadliest cities in the war or in the U S. Okay. And they are not great shots there apparently because for every 13 <laughs> shootings, you have a death. Oh my gosh. That means if you got shot 13 times, you might still survive. Right. <laughs> but I, by the way, freaking love Beaumont. It's got such a cool history, but it was really hard hit by the hurricanes. Oh. So it makes sense actually that he would move, they would have moved to Beaumont because. So, Just his mom. Yeah. So his mom would totally move there. It was like this. So. It's got a very sordid history, but Beaumont was an oil town. Like it just had, it like boomed out of nowhere. They found oil underneath the city. Mm -hmm. It's called like, they have like, they have like a big, huge oil rig in the middle of the town. It's like oil refinery in the middle of the town. Um, they have all these old colonial era houses. Um, it's got a really cool history, but during, after one of the hurricanes, there was a white flight. Um, but prior to that, it was a very, what's a white flight. Uh, it's where everybody who's white immigrates out of the place. Never oh, comes okay, back. Gotcha. And okay. it's taken over by more culturally, expressive people like right. people that aren't just white so you right. have every kind of ethnicity moving into the neighborhood and you know white people can't have that so then the rest <laughs> of the white people move but like right. it's probably one of the coolest places i've ever lived because it's so ethnically diverse and it's a beautiful city it's just really dangerous but it would make total sense they'd move there because it was like it was like kind of high class like it was yeah. like yeah that's where you go 
Yeah. So, well, the, just his mom moved there. And this is Brooks. This is the, the, the kid that was kid, performing yeah. the act. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so he lived with his father until he was 15 years old. So just 1970. Um, but then he dropped out of high school and moved in with his mom. And when he would go visit his father, he would also visit Dean. Does it say what street he lived on? I just have to know. Because you had all in those Beaumont, street names. In Beaumont, no. Just, oh, darn. Uh, the street names are all related to Dean specifically. Because I know exactly, what, like, I know that city like the back of my hand. <laughs> like, I can tell you how to get places to this day. Yeah, no, that's the only real mention of Beaumont is that uh, darn. Brooke's mom moved out there. Okay, so Brooke's mom's out there. He doesn't live with her anymore. No, he does. he's living with his dad, but then he drops out of high school, and then he lives with her and would go back to visit. Okay, so he's moved and out of Houston, he, yeah. and he's in Beaumont, but he visits. Okay, yes. continue. And while he was visiting, he would go stay at Dean's apartment, and he could just kind of come and go as he pleases over at Dean's place. Well, and who wouldn't want that when you're that age? You know right? what I mean? That's, that's what every kid wants absolutely. when they're that old. I have absolute freedom. I'm an adult. I know everything. Absolutely. So later that same year, Brooks moved back to Houston and began to look at Dean's place basically as a second home because he was living with his dad again. And then he's just like all all the time he's over at Dean's house. I wonder because if Dean's his any... second father, basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, you said he became a father figure. So I'm wondering if there was some animosity between his father and him. And you got to wonder if the father because like, I think a lot of people knew their kids were gay. There just was no acknowledgement of it. I don't think Brooks isn't gay, though. He just was being paid to perform gay acts. OK, continue. Yeah. Um, around the same time, Brooks dropped out of high school. Mary and Dean's half sister. Um, so Mary, Dean's mother and his half sister, Joyce, moved to Colorado uh, after the failure of move. her third marriage and closing the family candy company in 1968. Dean and his Dean and his mother talked often on the phone, but after moving to Colorado, she never saw Dean again. Colorado. I don't know why. Reason? No, there's nothing behind it. She was married to her third husband, got divorced, and then took Joyce, his half-sister, and just went to Colorado. Okay. Natural next step. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, but they closed all the candy stores down, or the one candy store. And after the candy company closed, Dean got a job as an electrician, and he worked there until his untimely death, which dun, we'll get dun, to. Bah. All right, so this is where it's going to start to get really dark, and it's going to get a little bit graphic, and I tried to take some of the information out, and I'll kind of go over it, but again, talking about these victims, it's not in... We're not making fun of them in any way. We're not Unless they get something real dumb, then I will reserve the right to make fun of (laughs) them. We're not... I'm not degrading them in any way. These are all facts, and... Just with all this information is with the utmost respect to the victims. Yep. Okay. 100%. So September 19 or 1970, September 25th, specifically an 18 year old college freshman by the name of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Conan vanished hitchhiking with another student from the university of Texas. He was on his way home um, to his parents' home in Texas and he dropped off. He was dropped off at a crossroads in uptown Houston area. So Coral had come across him, Jeffrey, and offered him a ride, uh, a lift to his parents' house. Um, at the time of Conan's disappearance, Coral lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street. Again, don't know where that is, but I think it's somewhat close. Uh, Conan was the first known victim of Dean Coral. Brooks led the police to Conan's body on August 10th, 1973. So Brooks knew that he had taken Jeffrey Conan and killed him because he knew where the body was. So Brooks is now an accomplice. Not yet, but he's... But if he knew where the body was... Yes, but this is the first victim. So I'll get to that. Okay. 
Um, the details lead the investigators to believe that Conan had been bound and gagged, dying by asphyxiation after being sexually violated. Okay, so this is like BTK stuff. Yes, the body was wrapped in plastic and covered in lime beneath a boulder. Okay, real quick, that's a pretty pretty crime-savvy move, right? Covering a body in lime makes it difficult for a do- or a uh, remain-sniffing dog to find him. Right. Then he's put under a boulder. Do we think this was his first victim? I don't think so. That's why it's it's labeled his first known victim. So we think he's practiced. I think he's he definitely has. Because all of the information we're getting is from Brooks and another guy, which I will get to. So they cracked Brooks and he he spills all this at some point. Absolutely. But interesting. So I the, I just, okay, so personally, I've studied a lot of murder victims. Um, this is, you know, this is what we do. <laughs> you're, right. you're listening to Pong. <laughs> um, so having studied a lot of these crimes, I would say most serial killers. Um, don't start out knowing how to avoid cadaver dogs. Absolutely. I, he, he killed someone else, man. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, Brooks reported that around the time of Conan's disappearance, he had interrupted Coral sexually assaulting two different teenage boys. Oh, you know, whatever. I'm just going to take off now. Right. From whom Coral had strapped to a four poster bed in his room. Yeah, totally Cor- normal. Here's the best part. Okay. Coral promised Brooks a car in return for his silence. Hey, buddy. I know you just saw me murking a couple kids in there, but you know, I'll buy you a car. (laughs) See, but but you have to also remember around the same time of Conan's disappearance and now he's sexually assaulting two teenage boys. He's absolutely killed before, but these are the known victims. And then he offers, oh, hey, you caught me doing this, but I'll buy you a car if you keep your mouth shut. And so he accepted. And then later um, he was, Coral purchased him a green Corvette. If there's uh, any ever, ever time, I was going to buy a green <laughs> Later, Coral admitted to Brooks that he had killed the two youths and offered him $200 for any boy he could lure to Coral's apartment. So now we've got a Jeffrey Epstein situation here. Oh, here, I'll give you money, but all you have to do is bring the victims to me. Coral's victims were usually lured into Brooks's car that Coral owned. Uh, the attraction to enter the car was either to be offered a ride or to join a party they were going to. And then the victim was driven to Coral's house where he would be, uh, where the victim would be applied drugs or alcohol. And very similar to Dahmer. Yeah. Absolutely. Then he would strip them naked and tied them to either Coral's bed or a, this is the worst part, a plywood torture board, which was usually hung on the wall. After the victim, victims were tied. Okay, so real quick, this dude thought this through. Absolutely. I'm sorry, but what is a torture board? He absolutely had taken the time to figure that out. I've actually seen a replica of this. As you're telling this story, I'm remembering this. When I was much younger, I used to get this podcast back when podcasts were videos um, on like your iPhone, not iPhone, iPod. That's how old this was. They had like a dramatic representation of it, but they had like a buildup of what it looked like. So essentially, according to to History Channel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. While Hitler was building the pyramids with the aliens, <laughs> um, but they—it's uh, like the, it like hangs over the back of a closet door. It's literally just a piece of plywood with like straps on it. Okay, but then it had like sharp objects sticking out of it and stuff. The dude was just a sadomasochist, absolutely. But I think that that goes back to the repression we talked about before. I think so. I think so. 
So after the victims were tied, they would be sexually assaulted, tortured, and then killed by either strangulations or shooting them with a twenty-two pistol. But he preferred strangulation. Absolutely. Which is another telling sign because it means he liked to be up close and he liked to watch them. He liked to watch the light leave their eyes. Absolutely. Their bodies were then tied in plastic sheet in plastic sheeting in another one thing of that four will stop places. cadaver dogs, by the way. Huh? That's another thing that will stop cadaver well, attempt to stop cadaver dogs. Right. Um, and he would bury them in one of four different places, a rented boat shed, um, a beach on, and correct me if I'm saying these wrong, Bolivia Peninsula. I wouldn't know. A woodland near Lake Sam Rayburn, where Cora owned a lakeside cabin, and a beach in Jefferson County. Jefferson County is by Beaumont. Okay. So Jefferson County is where I lived. Um Jefferson County is probably like, oh, hey, uh, Brooks, you're going to run and visit your mom. Do you want to just drop this body off? Yeah, yeah, why not? So that's driving for like at least two hours Mm -hmm. in the Texas heat with 100% humidity with a body in your trunk. Yes, which is disgusting. Now it is December, but I mean, it's still hot. Okay, so it's now 92 degrees Mm -hmm. with 100% humidity. Right, so it's now December 13th, 1970. Brooks lured 14-year-old... Uh, two different uh, 14-year-old boys, one by the name of James Glass and Danny Yates. James Glass is the one that I've heard of before. Okay. And they were led away from a religious rally that was held in the Heights District of Houston. Glass knew Brooks and had previously visited Coral's residence. Both boys were tied to opposite sides of of Coral's torture board, where they had been raped, tortured, um, raped and tortured before being murdered. And their bodies were buried in a boat shed Coral had rented in November of that year. So just a few weeks earlier. This guy had some severe murder experience. Absolutely. Like, this this puts a few of the big names to shame. Like, I don't think even Bundy disposed of his victims quite as well. At least not at this level. Well, I, yeah, because Bundy, I think, would just throw them into a cavern that... Well, he, people don't they commonly found, they come found across. bodies by the side of the road with Bundy. They found a, a woman with his well, so DNA science had not come quite as far, but they found seminal remains in this woman who was nude by the just off the side of a road. Like mm-hmm. homie was like just rolling down the road, just booted her out the car. Like Yep. So this guy is kind of a prolific serial killer with a ton of planning and forethought going into is are <laughs> is any of this getting connected or is this just yes, like but, hey, uh, there's another dead kid? Yeah, but you have to remember, though, too, this is all within a very poor, small community that these boys are going missing. He's not, it's not, most serial killers kind of go outside of their own bubble to kill, otherwise it would get tied back to them. So that's but where that's, he was not saying, super intelligent. He's, he's in such a small space, and he's committing so many murders so rapidly. How is this not drawing attention? Oh, it, it, it does, but it's such a poor area that they don't have the manpower to find these kids or to go searching for them. The, one of the largest prisons in Texas is in Jefferson County. It's Beaumont Municipal. It's the it's huge. Well, it's not. No, it's not Beaumont Municipal. It's just in Jefferson County Municipal. It's it is a massive prison complex. Mm-hmm. I've been inside it. I, I visited. I had a friend inside and it shocks me that they wouldn't like it's an old prison. Yeah. <laughs> it's not new. Right. So how are they not hunting down this dude who's just murking kids left and right? Because it's a poor area. <sighs> the police aren't going to take care of poor kids. They don't. They're not the ones that are their paychecks are coming from. Well, their paychecks aren't coming most of the time. So roughly six weeks after the double murder of the two boys of Glass and Yates, uh, Coral had enticed brothers. And this is the sad part. Two brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop into his car while they were walking home from a friend's house. Their father had dropped them off, and they discovered that their friend wasn't there, so they began walking home. 
And that's when they entered Coral's vehicle and they were raped and tortured before being buried in the boat shed as well. Can you imagine that father? Oh like my you missed your kids by this much. The whole time I was typing this out, I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, oh my gosh, how guilty would you feel well, knowing that like, you didn't you just, just sit and wait? Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh, they're not home. Jump back in the car. That's all it would have taken. Oh, I mean, that had to hurt. The guilt. Oh, so hard. Uh, but sometime between March and May of 1971, Coral killed three more victims who lived in the Houston Heights, and all were buried in the boat shed. Brooks was involved in all three of the abductions. So Brooks is a total accomplice. Absolutely. Because every boy he brings in, he gets 200 bucks. Do you think Brooks was a... like? I, I just feel like 200 bucks, granted, a lot of money at the time, but yeah. I don't feel like that justifies murder, regardless of how groomed you are. Do you think he was receiving some kind of sexual pleasure out of this? Maybe he had something to I do with it? Or? I don't know. There wasn't a lot that I could find about his intentions and why he did it. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, our bodacious money changer, Stephanie, has walked into the room. Stephanie, could you tell us what $200 is <laughs> back at that time frame? Calculating. Well, Stephanie. Stephanie. <laughs> Whoa, you got such a deep voice there. Calculating. <laughs> hey, baby, Calculating. what's your sign? <laughs> Ding, ding. $200 in 1970 is $1,329 in 2020. In today. Oh my gosh. Wow. He was so, offering them quite a bit. So I know this is going to sound really, really grim. I would like to find out how much money he made. Well, they sold their candy shop, so I'm sure he had a lot in no, savings. No, no, no. I mean Brooks. Oh. After bringing in all these kids in three years? Absolutely. I would be, well, I'm sure we could break it down. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, how spooky is it that you can put a dollar sign on the amount of death that the Candyman oh, reigned? Oh, it gets better. Not better. It gets worse, I should say. It's but much, the much story worse. gets thicker is what I should the anticipate. The clock thickens. So after Coral would lure these boys in, he would often convince some of them to write letters or even call their parents explaining their their disappearances. Wait, what? Oh, sorry, Mom. I left town because I'm going to go earn money here. And it was it was kind of a common thing for kids to just go leave the town and go start working in a factory somewhere to make money. Okay. Yeah. Super strange, but he that's one reason why they nope. were Nope. Big old still not yeah, okay. They weren't looking for him. What the heck? So in the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced um, another person in the... In the gets intertwined in the story by by the name of Elmer Wayne Henley. Most people would reference him as Wayne, but I'll re reference him as Henley. Um, but Brooks introduced them him to Dean. Henley was likely supposed to be Coral's next victim, but Coral decided that Henley would be better as an accomplice and offered him the same payment of $200 per child. You're too smart, and to you know too much. You want to yeah. go bring me kids? Well, I think he was going to be a victim, and he's like, oh, you're too pretty. I like having you around. Creepy. Yeah. And so, yeah, he offered him the same thing. Now, Coral lied to him, though, and told Henley that he was involved in a white slavery ring operating in Dallas. Oh, yeah, you know, all those white slavery so rings. So we need to kidnap all these boys so we can sell them into this slavery. Yeah, it seems legit white slavery. Yep, yep, that, right. that checks out for me. Give me money. <laughs> right? Now, it took Henley several months before accepting Coral's offer, but in 1972, he took Coral up on the offer because his financial strain with his family, um, he needed the money. Uh, Henley assisted in his first abduction sometime between February and March of 1972. So this dude is building a criminal freaking empire. Yeah. 
That's why I'm saying we've got some Jeffrey Epstein in this. Yeah, except that Jeffrey Epstein was an idiot. But anyway, yeah, I agree. He was surrounded by people more intelligent than himself. <laughs> in the statement, Henley gave the police following his arrest, the boy he had picked up for Coral was lured in by the promise of smoking marijuana. Just, hey, want to come smoke some Mary Jane? I have a funny feeling that, like, neither of them have ever smoked marijuana, so the pitch was really bad. Probably. Hey! Do you want to come do the drugs with us? <laughs> Would you like to smoke some weeds? This is the best hemping guana that we have. <laughs> do you want to know what it is like in the counterculture? That's probably exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> so at Coral's residence, Henley used a familiar ruse to trap the boy. And this will sound familiar to you, Zane, because this is exactly... Why or will almost that sound familiar e to me? What are you insinuating, Kyle? <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> because this is nearly exactly how John Wayne Gacy would entrap his victims as well okay this finna get spooky all right okay. so henley handcuffed himself and let me show you a trick yeah let me show you a cool trick Hand ah! handcuffed his uh, himself and then used a key to unlock um the handcuffs here now and you try the boy. yeah now you try it once the handcuffs were on him then he was locked up and coral bound and gagged him henley left the boy the boy with coral believing he was sold into sec a sexual slavery ring. The identity of this boy is not known, although it is possible that his name is Williard Branch. He was 17-year-old from Oak Forest, and he went missing February 9th of 1972. And well, his... that was when his missing missing persons report was filed, right? Yes. Okay. The worst part is, is his body was emasculated and then buried in the boat shed. So... Kyle, when you, when you say emasculated, do you mean certain parts of the male anatomy were removed? Yes. Interesting. Yes, that's the why would, softest why would way this, I can present that. Why would this expand, though? Because up to this point, there, has there been bodily mutilation that's been noted? With the, with, in no, the in fact, at, at, from everything that I could find, this his was the only body. I mean, all the bodies had been tortured, clearly tortured. Well, I mean, yeah, signs of physical trauma but are going to be evident. his was the one that was actually, he had body parts actually removed. So the... A piece of the male anatomy was gone. Yes. That is really weird. Is he a trophy keeper? Yes, but most of his trophies were just like things that he would find in the boys' pockets, like house keys. And but he like was that. a magpie. He, he kept, but did we know where this thing went? No. Interesting. Yeah. Spooky. Yeah. I mean, are we getting some Ed Gein vibes here? Well, I'm actually any... wondering, it's so out of his ethos if it was a copycat, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, using this rouse on another youth, Henley had brought to Coral's home after about a month later. Henley claims that he did not have the same intention to sell Frank's... Uh, oh, sorry. His name is Frank Augury. So uh, this but, is this next guy, not, not the yes. one who's had his, his genitalia Right. Removed. This is a new guy. Okay. And it's about a month later. And he didn't have the intention to sell Frank to, into the sex slavery. Uh, but once Frank was in handcuffs, Henley claimed he tried to persuade Coral to not assault and kill Frank... But Coral refused, telling Henley that he had sexually assaulted, tortured, and killed the last boy Henley brought to him and intended to, to do the same to Frank. So real quick, Henley is claiming this lack of knowledge this mm -hmm. entire time? Yes. Can I just point out that is a really good guise if you're being interrogated by the police? Oh, oh I didn't know. Sure. I thought it was white slavery. But right there, he acknowledges that he knew it wasn't white slavery. Right. So... Well, originally he thought it was, and that's why he's like, oh, I guess it's okay because well, it's white kids. That's that what he sell. says in his, his police file, sure, but I feel like there's two different narratives here. First, mm -hmm. he says it was white slavery. I knew nothing about it. I kidnapped the kid. That was all I did. Now he's saying, I basically was in the room and I told him, hey, don't do this. 
So yeah, how, but how think, frequently was that happening? I don't think these all came out at the same time. I think these were presented at different times. Like right when he had been captured, he told one story. And then once he was actually on trial, he told another story. Well, sure, you're, you're busted. But I, I feel right. like he... I just I don't believe for a minute that Henley didn't know what he was doing. I'm sorry. I like I know we live in a society that's guilty or yeah, uh, innocent okay, until proven guilty. But I think he was totally an accomplice. I think so. I think he knew. I think so too. But I think this is where he actually learned. Oh, it's they're not going to sex slavery. You're having sex with them and then killing them. I think he knew before. Anyway, continue. Um, but Henley subsequently assisted Coral and Brooks in the burial of Frank at the High Islands Beach. So now he's a felonious accomplice. Yes, and Brooks is as well. Well, Brooks has been for years. Yeah. Although Henley found out that Coral was not selling the boys into sex slavery in Dallas, but using them for his own gratification, he still became an active participant in the abductions. On April 20th of 1972, he assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction of another 17-year-old by the name of Mark Scott. Um, Scott, But this one's kind of interesting because when Scott was grabbed, he fought really hard to escape. And he was even threatening his three... uh, He was threatening his three abductors abductors, with a knife. But when Henley pulled out a pistol, Scott just gave up. And Scott was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as Frank. Okay, so I can tell you right now, no one knows how they'd react in this situation. But for, and, and I don't think he knew where he was going. I don't think he knew the horrors in store. I can tell you right now, I would fight tooth and nail Absolutely. before anything happened. So. I would, um, I'm sorry, I would rather take a gunshot to the face than go to wherever they're taking yeah, me. Yeah, wherever you're taking me, it's worse. Um, Absolutely. So, listeners, if you listen to the Crime Junkie podcast, plug, 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 which you should, they have a bunch of rules for staying alive. Um, I'm going to add our own, quote, Crime Junkie rule. Okay. Um, fight. Absolutely. Just fight. Doesn't matter what you have. There are sharp parts of your body. There are bits of you that are not meant to come into contact with bits of other people. Absolutely. That are very painful. Swing your elbows, fight, get free, or die trying. (laughs) Absolutely. I completely agree. So Brooks later reported Henley was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders. So not only was he now... He wasn't just He was an accomplice, dude. I, he I don't care what in the anybody murders. says. Mm-hmm. He's been in on this from the get-go. You don't just become sadistic. Like, right. You, I think You've he's... got something wrong with you if that's the case. Yes. So on June 26th of 1972, Henley assisted in the abduction of two boys, one by the name of Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. According to Brooks, the two boys were tied to a bed after their torture and rape. Henley strangle, strangled Balch and then yelled, hey, Johnny, and shot DeLome in the forehead, and the bullet exited the boy's ear. DeLome then pleaded, Wayne, please don't, before he was strangled, and both boys were buried in the High Islands Beach. So he shot him, and then strangled him because he didn't die. Okay, first off, the fortitude to take a headshot. Right. Interesting. Second off... Dude, this guy... But that was Henley. That wasn't even Coral. Yeah, no, that that's, was Henley that's what that I'm saying. That. Henley... Henley played a bigger role than he's letting on Absolutely. for obvious reasons, but yes. like, dude, I, I don't believe for a minute that Henley's expertise was not utilized at a much higher level than we know. Yes. I think that's a definitely mm-hmm. it did some weird stuff. Sorry, that one is deserved. Yes. Anyway, continue. So between 1970 and 1973, Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. Holy crap. All of them were males between the ages of 13 and 20. Wait, reiterate, how many? 28 in a three-year period. I think that's even a less than a three-year period because it doesn't start in, like, January. It I, starts I know. In like... What? It... 
Uh, and these are Mike, just I the need known. you to look up something for me. How many people did Ted Bundy kill? He's checking the archives. Yeah, he's, he's just walking back into our dusty archives. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mike. Mike. No. Past the Holy Grail. It's on the <laughs> left. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> And then you hear it in a little hole back there. It puts the lotion on the skin. <laughs> well, this is helpful. Wikipedia is telling me that he died one time. Oh, great. <laughs> once. He died once. You only get lynched once. Okay. I found this on the web for Ted Bundy victims. Ted Bundy's and Check victims include 30 women. 30 murdered. women. 30 women. <laughs> you win, Ted. <laughs> All right, you had two more. Yeah, you win, Ted. <laughs> I hope that the electric chair was worth it. Anyway. Right. Okay. So being between 1970 and 1973, Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. All were males between the ages of 13 and 20. The majority of them were in their mid-teens. Most of the victims were assisted by... Brooks and Henley. So, so so he definitely has a thing for prepubescent teenagers. Yes. That's really creepy. Yes. So he's he's now a pedophile as well. Yes. Okay. Several of the victims were friends friends of either Brooks or Henley. So they used okay. Most of them. Yeah. yeah. So they were just like, oh hey, you're my friend. Let's come over and do this thing. So they trusted him. They trusted them to go over. Um other of the bo- of the victims were just boys that Coral had become acquainted with. So he, he grooms all these kids, though. There's not really target of opportunity snatches by Coral. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of target of opportunity snatches by the other two, but not by Coral. Yeah. Okay. At one time, Coral had a 19-year-old boy tied to his torture board, and Brooks persuaded him to let the boy go. That boy's name was Billy Riddinger and was allowed to be released. On another occasion, Henley Charisma knocked... skill 100. So this, this part would... I mean... You can't trust anyone at this point because it's on another occasion, Henley knocked uh, knocked Brooks out only to wake up tied to the torture board where Coral assaulted him repeatedly before releasing him. But Brooks still helped Coral in abdu- abductions. Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm mm-hmm. Syndrome, 200%. Dude. For more victims. Oh, dude. Okay, so that that is a level of psychological gnarliness that it... we. This is like a case study on all the kind of kooky. Like, yes, that's why I'm like, this case has so many things that I feel like we could dissect and learn about serial killers. Because he exhibits all the tendencies. Yes. Like, why is this not studied like more? Huge spectrum. Like, yes. most of these guys. Okay, so we're going to talk about a lot of serial killers. But over the time, you'll notice that they're all like microcosms of this homie. Like, if anything, every horror film should start with based on a true story and it'd be about him, not Ed Gein. Sorry, Ed. But like, why am I sorry? <laughs> I'm not sorry. You don't cut a chick open like a deer. I'm not sorry, yeah. Ed. But he had two victims, and yet he is the his prolific story. serial killer of his time. He's not even the first, right? But he kind of was the one that led and into the but knowledge of what's happening. Twenty-eight kids. Twenty kids. That's the thing that's crazy to me. These are children. How is this not talked about? That's what I want to know. That's why I'm like, I think the story needs to be told. I bet he was involved with the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They're turning the... Sorry. So June uh, 1973, after a small lull in the killings, there was a large increase of of abductions. So a little bit of a lull, and then all of a sudden it was just bam, bam, one right after the other. This makes sense. He's he's starting his downward spiral. Yes. Um, He's become invincible in his own way. But not just that, but it's not just the increase in how many abductions, but the killings become more brutal 
as Sadistic. the murders go along. Yeah. Exactly. So his, his sadism is increasing. Absolutely. He's becoming ballsier. Yep. There's going to be an imminent decline. I don't know what, but there there's going yep. to be something that happens where he's going to get too brazen. That's what happens yes. every time. And it's actually psychologically proven they're trying to be caught because they want to know that their work was approved. Yes. They want to know that the police are after them because that means they're validated. And it's yep. creepy as hell, but it's where it is. So Brooks and Henley reported that at that time, Coral had a kind of bloodlust is what they called it. Oof. Adding that they would know when Coral was about to announce, I need a new boy. That's, he, oh, that he is. say, I need a new boy. Freaky as crap. Due to the fact that he would appear restless, smoking cigarettes, and making flex movements. Not sure what that would entail. Weird flex. Weird flex. <laughs> okay. Puns, I've got them. <laughs> um, so the next victim is... William Ray Lawrence, and he was 15 year old, years old. Do we have an average on their ages? Because I feel like they're all 15. I will go. I'm actually going to name all of the victims and their ages at the end. Okay. Uh, Raymond Stanley Blackburn, Blackburn was 20 years old, and they were among the few that were killed at this time during his bloodlust rage. Dude, the phrase bloodlust in this equation, we've all heard the word bloodlust, but yeah. for some reason, it, it like literally, I have chills right now. Yeah. Like, he was on a bloodlust. At this at this point, I'm like, is he? Is it more of a sexual thing, or is he really just wanting to kill people? Well, he's chain smoking. He's the flex movement. I think you're talking about is like clenching, unclenching hands, like that, oh, that kind gotcha. of concept. Okay. You know, he's like, I need a new one. He's a junkie. Dude. Absolutely. He's, what they're describing is the behavior of somebody who is coming off of a drug. Yep. That is really scary because that means he has lost complete control of his faculties. Because think mm -hmm. about it. So when you do drugs and you go through rehab, don't ask me how. Um, <laughs> when you when you go through rehab, you get something called dope sick, um, mm -hmm. and it's where your body literally revolts against its natural behaviors because it needs the drugs for stasis. You're right. really sick. People have died in dope sickness. That's what it sounds like he's going through. Absolutely. at a sexual sadist level. Absolutely spooky stuff. Yes. Now in this next little section. It's going to get really complicated, so I'm going to have to go slow. So that way we're all on the same page. Um, but David Brooks ended up marrying his pregnant fiance in 1973. So not only was he doing all these things for Dean, he was... Being a family man on the side. Being a family man on Hello, the side. Hello, John Wayne Gacy. Exactly. All right. um, and Henley, because of his sole assistance in the abductions... Uh, so then he became the sole assistant in the abductions. So now Henley has taken the role that Brooks had. Mind you, Henley was supposed to be a victim. Yes. And now he's helping him. Ooh. Uh, this is just getting better and better. So the pair, the pair would be Henley and Coral abducted um, another 15-year-old by the name of Michael Anthony Balch, who was the brother to a previous yep. victim. I remember Balch. Yep. Um, Do you have a thing for brothers? Do we know I if don't that know, was but, a target of opportunity? But he had, he's killed two pairs of brothers. Okay. One so of them was together, and then the other two were at separate times. So he's got a thing for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then they also took another 17-year-old by the name of Charles K. Carey Co Cobble and Marty Ray Jones. He was 18. On August 3rd, 1973, Coral took his last victim. His name was James Stanton Dramala, and he was 13 years old. Uh, he was found tortured and assaulted in the same way as the previous 27 victims. On August 20, or excuse me, August 7th of 1973, Henley, he was only 17 at this time, invited a 19-year-old Timothy Cordell Curley 
to attend a party at Coral's home, a casual acquaintance that was intended to be Coral's next victim. Brooks was not present at the time. Um, after sniffing paint, Henley and Curly drove from Coral's home back to Henley's to pick up one of Henley's friends because she had called him saying that her dad had come home and beaten her after he was he had come home drunk and beaten her. Her name is Rhonda Louise Williams, and she was 15 years old. Williams. Mm-hmm. And so she jumped in the car with Henley and Curly and rode back to Coral's home. Is she an accomplice? Just wait. Coral was furious that Henley had brought a girl to his house, telling him that he had ruined everything. Henley told him the circumstances of what was going on at William's home and that she did not want to go back there tonight. So Coral claimed, calmed down and offered drugs and alcohol to the kids. After about three hours, all three of the youths passed out. Henley woke up and found Coral handcuffing him. His mouth was taped shut and his ankles had been bound together. Curly and Williams were laying next to him. Williams had been tied up and bound, where Curly had been stripped naked. Coral restated that he was still upset with Henley for bringing Williams, stating, Man, you blew it bringing the girl, before shouting, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. He then repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest. He then pulled Henley into the kitchen and shoved a twenty-two pistol into his stomach and threatened to shoot him. Henley promised to participate in the rape and the killing of the other two victims, and Coral agreed and released him. Oh, you'll be a sexual sadist with me? Yeah. That's cool. Exactly. We good. He then carried the two victims into Coral's bedroom and tied them to the torture board, one Wait on minute. each There's side. There's a woman involved here, though. Yes, but as Coral rapes the man, he can rape, Henley will rape the girl. So there's, okay, fair enough. Yep. For the, you know, what we're discussing. Not fair enough. Not fair enough in any way. But, right, you know. but you're understanding. Yeah, yeah. You're, it's coming together. Um, So Curly was tied to the board on his stomach, and Williams was on her back. And as they were getting tied to the board, they both were waking up. And um, that's where they agreed that um, while Coral was assaulting Curly, then Henley would assault Williams. Coral began assaulting uh, Curly while Henley was cutting off Williams' clothing. Both Curly and Williams were awake at this point. Curly was shouting while Williams looked at Henley and asked, is this for real? After her gag had been removed, Henley went into the other room and grabbed the gun while Coral was distracted and threatened say, saying, you're going to, you've gone far enough, Dean. I can't go any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. I really hope he shoots Dean and then shoots himself because he's a piece of Coral, <laughs> Coral taunted him and said, kill me, Wayne, and shouted, you won't do it. And then Henley fired the gun and hit Coral in the forehead, but the bullet did not fully penetrate the skull. He lunged forward, and Henley fired two more rounds, hit, um, hitting Coral in the shoulder. I can tell you right now, a twenty-two round not penetrating someone's head, that is not uncommon. Really? So there's a very thick part of your skull right at the front. Um, if you're point blank on someone with a twenty-two, it'll go through their head, no problem. Right. But if he's, like, across the room... Which, by the way, excellent shot, first right. off, right well, in the head. The only better place would have been if he shot him right in the groin about 14 times. But right. um, uh, I I could actually see that physically occurring, but it would it would be an anomaly. The benefit of 22 caliber rounds is their high velocity mm-hmm. because they're a small round. Right. Um, but 22 caliber rounds in a pistol cartridge also have a very limited amount of powder behind them. 
I it would take an exceptionally thick skull though to stop around. It would it would fracture the skull at well, the very least. Yes, but I don't I don't think it was just like bounced off. I mean, no. I think it was it just didn't it would have lodged him. in his skull. It stopped. Like, yes, but had it gone through, it would have ricocheted in his brain and he would have died. Well, just the the shock. This is the thing. What what is weirding me out is not the fact that it didn't go through. Because I mean, mm-hmm. you can have a head wound; it would be bleeding a lot. He, right. He would. You know, it's not like it just was like ping and bounced off. But right. The weird part to me is this: bullets have concussive force. People don't think about this. It's not the bullet that kills you. It's what it does to your innards. Mm. Um, especially assault rifle rounds create a concussion inside your body. Gotcha. They turn your body to goop. Um, 22 rounds are not kinetically powerful enough to do that, but it would be like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. Yeah. So I don't know how this dude, A, just kind of shrugs it off, and B, isn't like totally concussed. But I don't think it was just like, shot you, oh, I'm making a conscious effort to start running. I think it was more like it all happened at the same time where he was going to run at him. He shot him, and then... It didn't stop, but he kept running, and so he shot him two more times, and it hit him in the shoulder, and then he went running into the hallway against the wall. Secondary psychological point. If someone's right. got a gun pointed at you, never say you won't. Right. Except I have. So when he hits the wall, <laughs> Henley fired three more rounds into Coral's back as he slid down the wall, and that's where Coral died. After killing Coral, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board. Hey, guys, and Curly... I was in with you the whole time. Yeah, I was here to save you. Um, he was just going to let them go and say, go on with your lives, run. Yeah, and Curly's like, uh, <laughs> no, we're going to call the police. So they did. They called the police. Did he wait around? And he did. He waited around. Did he think that it would make him look more innocent? I don't know. But he actually admitted to the assistance of all those murder cases. He turned in Brooks as well. And both of them are now serving life sentences. Does it say where? Because I know where I'm sending a letter bomb. Um, it did say where, but I don't remember. Is it ADX Florence? No, that doesn't sound right. Okay. All I, I can do is take comfort in the moved. fact that they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there was a ton of information on the case, and after they had been, after everything had been released, them going out and looking for all these bodies, and, but then... But that's the thing, man. For this time, it was, like, shameful if your kid died that way. Like... You brought, like, shame on your family by being sodomized and then yeah. murdered. So, like, oh, that's just disheartening. Mm-hmm. And the, so I'm going to give you a list of all of the victims and their, their name and their age. And I'll go from the... These are just the ones that are known. I'm sure he, he has a much larger... Us. It's just like Ted Bundy. We know he had many more victims. He just would not admit to it. So there's Jeffrey Allen Conan. He was 18 years old. James Eugene Glass was 14. Danny Michael Yates was 14. Donald Wayne Waldrop was 15. Jerry Lynn Waldrop was 13. Randall Lee Harvey was 15. David Lee, or excuse me, David William Hillegist was 13. Gregory Mallory Winkle was 16. Reuben Wilford Watson Haney was 17. Willard Carmen Branch Jr. was 17. Frank Anthony Augury was 18. Mark Stephen Scott was 17. Johnny Ray DeLome was 16. Billy Jean Balch Jr. was 17. Stephen Kent Sickman was 17. Roy Eugene Bunton was 19. Wally J. Simino was 14. Richard Edward Hembury was 13. Richard Allen Kempner was 19. Uh, Joseph Allen Lyles was 17. William Ray Lawrence was 15. Raymond Stanley Blackburn was 20. Homer Lewis Garcia was 15. 
John Manning Sellers, 17. Michael Anthony Balch was 15. Marty Ray Jones, 18. Charles Ray Cobble, 17. And James Stanton Dremala was 13. And then at least two victims that were not, well, three technically, but two victims and a semi-humanoid piece of human refuse um, that were not numbered. not murdered. Not not yeah, not in the list because they don't know who they are. Well, no, I'm, I'm talking about the last two victims and the POS that oh. he ended up recruiting. Yes. Um, isn't that insane? That, that average is what like 16 years old. Yeah, about 16 years old was about the age. It makes you wonder if he had had something, and maybe at 16 he realized he was attracted to men. And I think he realized before that, that, but that was the impetus. Yeah. Yes. That's where, I mean, that's puberty. That's when you're sexually explored. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering if that because started to implode on itself. And then when he was in the military, he had had his first gay experience and then was like, that's when everything just came crashing down. And I also wonder if because of the taboo nature of the LGBT community at that point, he felt like he couldn't, um, just outright be gay. Not even felt. He probably could not outright be gay. Right. But he took it to such an extreme. Like, I, I can't, I, I can't even fathom, like, yikes. Insane. 16. And he had 28 victims we know of. Mm-hmm. And I think more. I think so too. I also think, mainly just because I enjoy desecrating this idiot's name, um, <laughs> the moron who he picked up second, whose name is now escaping me. Henley. Henley. I, I wouldn't be shocked if Henley was off on his own killing off people. Like, nah, I be he, was, he was too stupid. Never mind. Henley, I really hope you listen to this. And I hope that on your way to hell, you scream the whole way. Absolutely. Point blank. But I'm wondering, like, with Brooks especially, like, because he was kind of tortured. Not, I don't want to say tortured, but he was buttered up to kind of. Uh, the word of the word is groomed. Thank you. He was groomed kind of from 12 years old until. He started assisting at 15, you know? I See, this is the thing about Brooks, at least from what you've told me. He doesn't, he displays all of the, the signs of a lackey. None Absolutely. of the signs of, of somebody wanting to strike out on his own. Right. The one who really displays some eerie signs is Henley, um, yeah. which is really interesting because, yes, I agree that Brooks was certainly groomed for it. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't know if Brooks was maybe less intelligent or if it just was something that didn't register for him or if he'd been normalized to it. I mean, you have kids in war zones, they mm-hmm. grow up having to defend their families and to them right. it's very different um wow that that is a very interesting case study because it sounds like stockholm syndrome at a very high level yes i think one reason why i wanted to tell this story is because there's another documentary released on ted bundy and it's like why are we telling the same stories over again because zach efron needs a gig it's not just it's not just ted bundy and it's, it's like Disney is telling the same stories over and over again. How Make many stories? a new IP. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Everything is being overly done. It's all been done before. It's all, why Why do we have to, why can't we tell different stories? But no, we have to tell the same stories over and over and over again. Not to mention the fact that the Candyman needs to be spoken of. And, and there's a few reasons in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The Candyman is a prolific serial killer with advanced knowledge of how to dispose of a body and avoid being captured for a long period of time, how to coerce people into committing the murders with them. All of these things are pertinent to our day and age, but more importantly, it's an insult to the victims to not remember this and use it as a case study. Yeah. Um, And I get that a lot of our listeners, you listen to this because you also have a morbid interest in serial killers. We all do. (laughs) We all have some level of interest in the macabre, but 
I really think that this needs to be spoken about more because it keeps people safe. Absolutely. Um, more The more you know about things that could potentially happen to you, the more that you will be aware of them before they happen. And don't live your life paranoid, but don't right. be stupid. Absolutely. I agree. I... I think we've talked about some heavy stuff here, Kyle. Um, yes. Just a bit. I had to take, when I was studying this, I was at work. Yes, I was working. Yeah, and it took me about Kyle's, five hours. Check to out Kyle's search history at work. <laughs> Kyle, we're worried about you. You've been posting a lot of I, song lyrics on Facebook. <laughs> I had to take stops. When I was reading through the different murders, I'm like, okay, stop. I had to stand up, I had to talk to a few people, and then I was like, okay, I've cleared my head, and then I'd sit down and get right back into it, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. I think because I, in my mind, just different horror movies were going through, like, um, Kyle's mind Amityville is a horror, horror with the, um, with the boat, uh, the boat shed, mm. and that's what I'm imagining them burying the bodies, and then it would go to Gacy, and, um, the book about Gacy, which is, um, Killer Clown. Killer Clown. And just the bodies that were on piled on top of each other. And there were so many that were buried in the, the boat shed that it had to be, it had to look like Gacy's basement. You know what I mean? Or Gaines closets or like, Gaines closets. I, I think for me, what I find probably the most clinically interesting about this whole topic is the manipulative capability this guy had, despite being um, a closet homosexual who felt repressed. I wonder why somebody who felt so manipulated his whole life felt the need to manipulate others, who felt so subjugated, felt the need to to do that to other people. But I think that there's – silver lining is the wrong word, but I think there's a silver lining-ish here. Um, there's a lot to be learned. Yes. But I think for me the one that stands out is he took what was bad in his life and decided to employ it on other people. Mm-hmm. Um there are a lot of people that we could use as an example. My mom, for one, who took the terrible in her life and used it to apply it to to good things. Uh, right. She was raised by a psycho hillbilly who beat the heck out of her and was a terrible, terrible mother and is not my grandmother. She just happens to be the mother of my mother. Yeah. Um, and she, my mom proceeded to get her a degree in psychology. She wants to help kids. She raised me and... I turned out as such a well-developed citizen, but, <laughs> but for real, I, I think that what we can take from this, the silver lining we can take out of this today is that we are all going to deal with some gnarly crap. There are a lot of people out there who go through very difficult trials in their lives. Um, for some, it might be feelings of inadequacy with their family if they come out of the closet. For others, it might just be that they don't feel attractive. We're really the only change we can make there. And I'm not saying that a kind word would have changed this whole terrible, terrible situation. But what I am saying is it wouldn't have made it worse. Right. So you are the change that you can make. You are the only person you can really change. You can help others, but you can't change them. So go out there and be that change. Try to help this whole crazy world be a little bit better. Absolutely. And if you are the person who's struggling, seek help. Do what you need to do. Mm Mm-hmm. You're the only thing you can change. Yeah. And we believe in you. So we want to challenge you to something. Go out there and be that change. You're thinking of someone right now. We know it. (laughs) We're all thinking of someone who needs our help, who could use a hand up. Please go do that. Please go be that change. And we'll all be a little bit better off for it. Agreed. Um, But it reminds me of a song. The song is called Aftermath. And the singer is Adam Lambert, and I recommend people to go listen to it. But there's a line in the song that says, tell a stranger that they're beautiful. 
And I've thought about this line for so many years because how easy it is to just, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going to compliment your family and friends, but imagine a compliment coming from a stranger and how you feel when that's happened to you. Cause I'm sure you've gotten a compliment from a stranger before. Uh, Hey, I like your shoes. Your, sh Oh, your shirt's awesome. Whatever. You know, it may be something superficial like that, but imagine what you feel. So be that change and be, and give others compliments. And I, in fact, I encourage and challenge all of our listeners to try and tell a stranger a compliment, tell them they're beautiful, something. I might get a number out of it, too, which is always a win-win. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, Paranormies, thank you for letting us preach. We like to do that at the end of our episodes, but Absolutely. we just deal with such dark subject matter. Uh, yes. I'm Zane. And I'm Kyle. Don't get in the car with strangers. And if you're shooting a rapist pedophile in the head, pull the trigger at least three times and aim directly at the Abdullah Oblongata. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> to keep up to date on what's happening on the podcast, follow us on Instagram at guysparofnormal. Also, if you have any stories you want to share with us, email us at pnormalguys at gmail.com.